everyone to the Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast, a Prairie Proud Wrestling Podcast covering everything from Winnipeg to worldwide. My name is Blair Pacheco. Thank you for joining me. I need to apologize first off. Uh, I was hoping to have this episode out yesterday, which was uh, the 21st, but due to issues with uh, Canadian Tire not knowing what they're doing, I had to delay recording it till Friday night. And I just got home, had a fantastic dinner at Shorty's Pizza. Um, If you're familiar with the Winnipeg uh, area, it is right near the Misericordia Hospital in Maryland. And it is quite possibly one of the best pizza places I've ever been to. It is incredible pizza. Their deep dish is fantastic. And I recommend everyone definitely go and check it out. So needless to say, here we are, it's eight o'clock on a Friday, I'm recording the podcast, and uh, I couldn't be happier about it, because I've been looking forward to doing it. The uh, The past few weeks, I've been blessed to have some incredible guests on, um, and I can't thank them enough, you know, Thrill and Dylan, Sebastian Taylor, Travis Cole, Eric from Time Bomb, I appreciate all of them taking the time out to join me on the Great Maker Wrestling Podcast. So with that being said, this week's episode, there was a bit of a a bit of a lull because I mean, there was uh, no dynamite. You know, I could have just recorded a you know dynamite review. Pardon me. So there was no dynamite. There was basically nothing really going on that you know I could have focused on. Everything was from the previous week, you know, with Rampage and that. So I was you know kind of thinking what I could do for this week's episode, and I thought I would do a review for this week's episode. I was scouring the uh, scouring the interwebs, trying to figure out just exactly what episode uh, or what show I wanted to review. And I thought, what better episode to review than one that I've never seen before? It was one that when I was younger, I wanted to go to, uh, but there was no way in hell my dad was going to take me to another multi-hour wrestling event he took me to the superstars taping back in 1991 and i think he regretted every minute of that four-hour escapade but the one event i'm talking about is from 1995 wwf returned to winnipeg for in your house great white north this was so this was october 22nd if i'm not mistaken 1995 it was at the winnipeg arena the the famed Winnipeg Arena. Everyone remembers, you know, the trough there. I think it was was the trough in Winnipeg Arena. It's been ages. I think there was a trough. Um, everyone remembers Winnipeg Arena. The yellow board, dasher boards for the for the hockey. You, the yellow steps going down. You can pinpoint it. Like if you were to see a clip, you would know. If you're from Winnipeg, you would know that that clip is done in Winnipeg. So, needless to say. In Your House, Great Wide North. It was the fourth In Your House. They had started doing the In Your House pay-per-views as, uh, you know, a little something to take, you know, bide the time in between the big four pay-per-views. So they had just started doing them, and they were, you know, there was some, you know, big matches on them, and uh, they still still were getting through their issues because I remember, I think it was the second one, they had like a big power outage, if I'm not mistaken, but... So they made their trek up to Winnipeg, and the attendance for this one was just over 10,000 people. It was 10,599, I think. It was around that. And as I was reading up on this pay-per-view, because 
I'd never seen it. I I knew what had happened in some of the matches, mainly just the main event. I was uh, it was all brand new to me. So I started looking it up. I was reading the old observer review for the pay-per-view as I found that was the most informative one to look at and this up to this point this was the worst rated WWF pay-per-view in wrestling observer history there's one match that I'll get to talking about that I was floored when I saw the star rating and obviously star ratings are subjective but if you were to go back and watch this match you're going to think it's a giant pile of shit as well so pardon me needless to say I jumped right into it, you know, started reading up on it, queued it up as I was uh, walking on the fat walker. And there was actually a pre-show match be, that wasn't televised. It was between Bob Hawley and Rad Radford, who we know as Louis Spicoli. And now I knew Rad Radford had a cup of tea or Louis Spicoli had a cup of tea in WWF before ECW and WCW. But this is something I would have loved to have seen. So I wish that there was footage of this one, but. Um, needless to say, the pay-per-view, needless to say, is going to be the word of the episode, I think, because I'm just knocking those out of the park. Uh, the show kicks off with Gorilla Monsoon. He's talking about how HBK, Shawn Michaels, is going to have to forfeit the Intercontinental title. Um, Storyline was that he in Syracuse, he was jumped by, you know, 10 military men, something like that. And he got beat up pretty bad. When you see the footage of him in the ring later, you know, he's got the black eyes and he looks like he was definitely taken down a peg or two. But the story that did come out was that uh, there was five people in the car. There was um, a female companion in the driver's seat. Sean was in the front seat and in the back seat was British Bulldog, Sean Waltman and uh, another passenger. So I guess the group of guys they saw them and they dragged sean out of the driver's seat and they're in a like a sedan so in the back seat you've got bulldog and sean and this other guy and the guys drag hbk out they're beating the crap out of him and bulldog's in the a back seat of a two-door two-door car struggling to get out to save him and you know we all know what happened after that was sean had to sean was beat up pretty badly had to give up the title and that's where we were here is hbk say or gorilla monsoon mentioning that sean's having to forfeit the title it was going to be forfeited to dean douglas but dean would have an opponent an opponent later on so the show kicks off with uh make a difference fatu versus hunter hearst helmsley and uh one notable thing during this match was how much fatu carried hunter you know Fatu had he went from head shrinker the head shrinker Fatu to make a difference Fatu where he was the very positive role model for the youth he had the uh, flashy colors on him and from there he I mean it was a he didn't have much success with it after that he became the sultan which I think he had an intercontinental title match with uh at WrestleMania 13 if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, from there became Rikishi. And obviously Rikishi was the most famous um, gimmick out of all of what Fatu did. But uh, Fatu did a great job carrying Hunter. You could definitely see the skill and the experience that he had. 
And uh, this was really the start of Hunter's career. He had only been with the company for about six months. He had his cup of tea as, uh, you know, terrorizing. And I think there was one other gimmick he had in WCW. So he had made the jump over. It was a very, there wasn't much to the match. It was the opening match. The crowd was definitely into it as, you know, it's the kickoff of the pay-per-view. So they're into it. One thing of note in this was there was a huge super kick by Fat too, and it was one that you're watching, you're not expecting it, and you almost audibly gasp like, "Holy shit!" It it just came out of nowhere. Triple H ends up getting the win after Fat Two missed a splash, and I mean, when I say that there wasn't much else that happened, it's it's very true. That was the extent of the match was you know there was a huge super kick, and that was about it. Uh, Post match, you know, Triple H was interviewed by Jerry Lawler. And uh, it was more just building and teasing the feud with Henry Godwin. Uh, Godwin snuck up behind, threatened to throw the slop bucket on him. Hunter had Jerry in front of him, you know, pushed, you know, using him as a shield. And they basically just ran off to the back. So that was it. It was a, a very lackluster opening. You know, Fatu did most of the heavy workload. And I mean, it's not surprising. It's the beginning of Hunter's career. And he really didn't come into his own for... You know, it seems maybe eight months afterwards, he definitely stepped up. It was more 1996 where things started to come together for him. Next up, we had a WWF championship or a tag title championship match. The champions, the Smoking Guns, facing off against Razor Ramon and 1-2-3 Kid. And uh, I mean, Ramon and Kid, they have had the they had their history all throughout as, you know, from the very beginning. And what I liked about this is they were teaming together and Kid had matching gear as razor i mean his boots and kick pads didn't match up but it was kind of it was really cool seeing him come out with the purple and gold have kid in the same font as razor and that is just the little things that uh things like that that stand out uh one notable thing on this one was on their way to the ring you actually see one two three kid throw up the two sweets on the uh walk to the ring which we all know nowadays how influential that was in wrestling, but at the time you don't think much of it. You're just like, okay, it's, you know, like the metal sign, you know, as, what was that? 14. I was 14 back then. Like I didn't know what it was going on. So, but um, from early on, you could definitely notice a lot of heel tactics from one, two, three kids, you know, just with the little uh, sort of rabid punches in the corner, getting the little cheap shots and just little things like that. And it really, led the way to his heel turn shortly after you know you look back now and you see it it's kind of all laid out for you but at the time you know you don't think much of it just being a little bit of a punk kid but with what you know now you see the beginnings of what would become you know one two three kids leading to you know him teaming with Sid you know Sid and the kid so you know you had the heel turn from that the match it was it was there Throughout this whole pay-per-view, it was very just there. The uh, Razor, he ends up hitting a Razor's Edge on um, one of the smoking guns. And one, two, three, Kid wanted in. So, you know, he is reaching for the tag. Razor tags him in. Kid goes in, and but he does one of the cocky, cocky pins. And what I remembered was how it was very reminiscent of Ted DiBiase's pin on him. In one, or was it Razor? One of the two's pins on him where Kid rolled him up when the crucifix and got the win. Exact same thing here. Guns got the win and retained the titles. Post match was basically just Kid blowing off Razor, 
Razor leaving, and then Kid going at it with the smoking guns, grabbing their belts. Razor jumps back in there to even the odds, gives the belts back, and that's it. But it just it really planted the seeds for that eventual heel turn that was just around the corner. Next up was Goldust versus Marty Jannetty. Now, Goldust, this was his debut match in WWF. They had had vig- or vignettes leading up to it to just introduce you to the character. I mean, it was the debut for Goldust, but Dustin, it's his second stint in WWF. He had the cup of tea back in the early 90s when he showed up to help Dusty. So we got a little bit of that. He leaves, goes to WCW, and really establishes himself as, you know, Dustin Rhodes. So he's back for round two in WWF. And it was really interesting... You know, you see this character, and this is the begin is his debut match. So it's the beginning of Goldust, and just how far the character came from that first match, because there wasn't lots to him. He, he I mean, he had the same. He had the entrance. He had the the gold uh, dust falling from the ceiling, all that stuff. The wig, the the robe, but the mannerisms in the ring. He he only showed a little bit of what eventually would come you know i was reading a little bit about this and he was at the time he was looking for help with the character and he was really being left out to dry just for what he should be what he should be doing with the character so he did a lot of just coming up with the stuff on his own and i think with what he did it really brought the character to life um you look at that feud with Razor, Ramon, that he had a few months later, and even the feud with Ahmed almost a year later, and or 10 months later, and you really see just how far he came as a character. He really developed something interesting and special. So you really see, you can really see just how far he comes. Now, Gennetti, Marty Gennetti, he had just returned to WWF, and they even mentioned it that he had some issues, you know, outside of the ring. He had just done a short stint in ECW, actually, where he had a couple matches, and one of them, I think, was against Shane Douglas, but uh, I can't remember exactly. So he had just returned, and this was his eventual lead into the uh, New Rockers with Leaf Cassidy. You know, I think this it was later... It was in 96 that they came together, if, uh, if I remember correctly. And Leaf Cassidy, Al Snow, who was also Avatar. And Avatar actually debuted shortly after this event. So, Janetti had just returned. And if you're a Winnipegger or familiar with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, if you look, you would notice for former Winnipeg Blue Bomber offensive lineman Chris Walby in the front row looking as disinterested as possible in this match. Uh, sitting two seats over, you see actually see someone talking on a cell phone where back in the day, back in those days, they were few and far between. Not like today where everyone's on one, but it's kind of neat to see. So Janetti, he was, you know, channeling his HBK versus Hulk Hogan in the selling of this match because he was just great with the selling. I mean... Goldust threw him into the ring post at one point, and the uh, the jump that he did, followed by the uh, the sell, was just something incredible. So, um, Janetti's selling was good. There wasn't a whole lot to this match. I mean, even Goldust winning, he 
won by the uh, face first suplex, which wasn't his finisher later on. But to start his career as Goldust, that's what it was. So. If anything, I think this match is definitely something worth watching just to see the beginnings of what came with Goldust. So next up, this was the one that really was something special. We had Yokozuna versus Mabel. Well, sorry, Yokozuna versus King Mabel. Mabel had just won the King of the Ring 1995. He finished uh, the summer off by headlining against Diesel for uh, a WWF championship match. And yeah, it was one of the worst SummerSlam main events of all time, if I'm not mistaken. It was uh, definitely something special. In my notes, as I was jotting stuff down, my few and far between talking points, under the match announcement, I just put wow. Because when you, if you go back and watch this, I feel like you would have the exact same reaction to this one. Um, Yoko was looking absolutely massive in the ring. And you could just see how far he had fallen from uh, a few years earlier. And if you were to go back and watch the WWE icons on him, they really talk a lot about his struggles with weight and just how much difficulties he had with it. And it was very evident in this match. The uh, He was gassed maybe a minute into the match, and it was really evident. Like, he was definitely struggling. The match only lasted about five minutes long, and there was a good portion of it that was just outside, a lot of selling and a lot of just wasting time. The one really notable thing about this was there was... King Mabel went for a bulldog on him and just completely botched the bulldog. He he grabbed him by the head and fell, but Yoko stayed standing. So there was that. The outside, there was um, Mo and Jim Cornette were going back and forth, and Cornette was down and Yoko tripped on him. And this match actually ended in a double countout. And... I was looking, just, you know, reading up about Yoko and his career, and he was actually under contract with WWF until 1998, and then he was released. And it almost makes you wonder if he was able to get his weight under control and get back into ring ring readiness if uh, maybe if... You wonder if maybe WCW would have taken a chance on him back then. Because that was 98. They were all in on bringing Ultimate Warrior in and other stars from the past. I mean, Piper had just done his run. Brett, who was still popular at the time, he was there. So they were really just bringing in the talent. It makes you wonder, would they have taken a chance on him if he could have got his weight under control with WWE? F brought him back how would he have fought fit in in the attitude era because it was definitely they were going full bore and it makes you wonder if he would have been able to keep up in that time I do think that if he was given a chance he would have been he could have easily had you know a successful career if he would have jumped and been able to sort his stuff out and gone to WCW afterwards yeah I mean I don't know if he would have fit in in that uh, the WWF um, era there, the Attitude Era, but 
with what WCW was doing, signing anyone and everyone, I have no reason to believe that that would have been any different. So looking up the uh, the ratings for this, and like I said, they're all subjective. Some people hate them. Some people like them. I always find they're interesting, a good talking point. This match actually received negative two stars, and it was worth every bit of that negative two because this match was just something else. And... Not in a good thing. If you have six minutes or seven minutes to spare, by all means, go out of your way and give it a watch and let me know what you think because this was my first time watching it and it is something. So next up was the uh, co-main event. Dean Douglas, he had just become Intercontinental title. HBK had to forfeit forfeit the title. He made his way out to ringside wearing his finest docker pants and uh, a nice Pele Pele jacket, which, I mean, early 2000s, late 90s, I'm sure that would have been just money. So HBK was just a fashion trendsetter before before it was really cool. So it's, I mean, maybe he could all teach us a thing or two. So HBK had to forfeit the title. They decided it was going to be Dean Douglas' time to time to run with the title uh dean douglas who we also know as shane douglas he uh in early 95 he was actually still in ecw he i didn't know this i knew the triple threat with candido and bigelow but uh in early 95 he was still part of a triple threat in ecw and it was actually with chris benoit and dean malenko and Looking back at that now and thinking about just the talent in that group and fuck that, that's a hell of a group there. I mean, all Chris Benoit aside, I mean, Dean Malenko is one of the greatest wrestlers. If you watch one of his matches, I mean, you are going to enjoy it because he's incredible in the ring. So you see those three guys and just really something special in there. So... The crowd was dead for this match. Look, other than the opening match, like it was just a spectacle to see how little they cared about what was going on in front of them. Just wait till the main event. It was no different. But it's not surprising. Uh, the lead-up to this match still had like all the media, all the television shows leading up to it were still advertising HBK wrestling. So you you're promoting him he's going to be there he's going to be in the match and then day of it's he's done so i'm really not surprised that the uh the reaction for the match and even throughout the card was what it was because i know the card changed numerous times throughout i think the only ones there was only two matches that stayed true throughout the whole thing and one was diesel versus british bulldog and i can't remember the other one other everything else changed because i think even undertaker was advertised at one point on the card then he got injured so you watch this match and you can just see razor moan's give a shit level has dropped off completely if i didn't say before razor moan was the opponent chosen for mr douglas so he just does not give a shit, doesn't care at all, just going through the motions completely. It is painfully evident. He didn't want to be there. The fans didn't want to be there for that. And it was really surprising if you look just how talented both these wrestlers are that they had a match as shitty as it was. Because, I mean, 
at the time, Razor was incredibly talented. Even afterwards, he, stood, he was talented, you know. And then Shane Douglas, Dean Douglas, he was, you know, an incredibly talented wrestler too. He was saddled with a terrible gimmick, the teacher gimmick like that, Dean Douglas or the Matt Stryker gimmick where he was a teacher. They are, they're fucking terrible and they don't work. So, I mean, it took, you know, how many years ago was Stryker in WWF with that gimmick? But it took up until then before they realized that it's not good. Nobody likes it. It's not going to work. You're almost waiting for one of the new NXT gimmicks to be the exact same because, you know, it's what they do now. So the uh, these two were outside of the ring forever, just killing time. And fuck, was it painful to watch. Like, this card in general was painful. Um, they're outside the ring forever, wasting time. They get back in. Razor hits a back suplex, and they're right near the ropes. And... Uh, Razor, pardon me, Razor drapes an arm over him for the pin, gets the three count, but before the ref counts three, Douglas kicks his foot under the rope, so technically the pinfall should have been broken. So the crowd's shocked that Razor won, so he's the new Intercontinental Champion, but then you have Douglas, who he has the argument that the pinfall should have been broken up, this and that. It's a rematch nobody wants, nobody needs to see, especially if it's going to be anything like this first match because it was just the shits. It was bad. After watching this entire card, I decided the next time I do a review, I'm going to put up a poll just with different stuff and then I'll I'll pick one of those things to watch. Like I might just do some of the, you know, whether it's the Raw or SmackDown from Winnipeg or, you know, some of the Thunders from Fargo that happened or maybe even some of the Canadian pay-per-views you know I could always sit and do in your house international incident because I mean Ahmed Johnson was on there and we all know how much I loved Ahmed Johnson because he was screwed out of his WWF championship opportunity okay I'm getting off track after that was the main event we had for the WWF championship Diesel versus the British Bulldog we were lucky enough to get Bret Hart as the special guest commentator I was watching this with the sound low, so I didn't get to pick up a lot of what he said, but you watch this and you just see how over Brett was for a Canadian audience. The crowd was going nuts. It was like he was from Winnipeg. So the crowd's pumped up. They're finally getting into it. Um, The guy behind the announcers was wearing a Teddy Bob's shirt, which was a fine drinking establishment on Arlington, which, if I'm not mistaken, is closed now. But just one of those little things you learn. So Diesel, fresh coming off his feud with Mabel at SummerSlam, really looking to solidify his legacy as a WWF champion. And, I mean, after that feud with Mabel and then this match with Bulldog, it really left a lot to be desired. Um one thing I really noticed in this match was just how intent the British Bulldog runs the ropes because he was just like a bulldog, literally a bulldog, just trooping it back and forth. I've watched my dog run, and that's what it was like watching Bulldog bounce off the ropes, just like a little tank running at you, a jacked up, tra- a jacked up tank. So the story of the match basically is just Bulldog working over Diesel. And it's not a bad match. Like you, If you were to tell that story today, it, it would have gotten a lot more praise than what it did. But 
for its time in front of that crowd, it just did not work at all. They were not into it. They were not buying it. And it really just continued the trend of the card of just falling flat. But they they told a good story. Like it was, the diesel selling was on point. Um, Bulldog's work, working over the leg, really hitting it home. He did a great job. They did a great job putting together, you know, a good technical match, good match with selling. But the crowd, like I said, they weren't into it. So actually my next note was crowd completely checked out. So um, Jim Cornette was on ringside and he was, you know, doing his finest managerial work out there. One thing with Cornette, I mean, at, for the time, he was a fantastic manager, you know, from the midnights to Camp Cornette. He really was something great in that role. Nowadays, with his opinions and oh, his bits, they just, you almost wish that he would stop that and just embrace the wrestling historian that's in him because he is one of the most knowledgeable people about wrestling history that's out there. He does a great job with it and is really, really knowledgeable and really something that I think has a lot more good to offer than what he does. But he's got his shtick going, just hating everything that isn't, you know, territory wrestling. So I still think that he could really you know, turn things around and do something really great with it. And I think it would really benefit a lot of people because he's incredibly knowledgeable. I mean, we've all seen him on Dark Side of the Ring and he knows his shit, so. So Cornette, he actually gets involved, you know, a fair amount in the match. He throws a huge elbow when uh, on the outside to Diesel when he's, you know, beached on the ground. Must have learned that from beautiful Bobby. That's the only thing I can... I can figure out where he got that from because it was picturesque and beautiful Bobby Eaton was, you know, a magician in the ring. So I'm just going to assume that's where he learned it from. But, uh, you know, Bulldog continues working over the leg, submission after submission attempt. At one point, he actually looks over at Brett and acknowledges him. And uh, he points to him and then puts on a sharpshooter. And it's one of the fucking worst sharpshooters I've ever seen. Um, it is really bad. So it's worse than the Rock sharpshooter, and that's saying a lot because the Rock did not know how to do the sharpshooter properly. It was bad. So uh, Cornette keeps getting involved. He's selling like crazy, you know, giving Janetti a run for his sell job. Bulldog actually goes after Brett on the outside. Pie faces him. That's enough for Hitman to uh, lose his shit, and he gets in there. He gets involved, jumps in the ring, and him and Bull- him and Bulldog are going back and forth. So Diesel ends up losing by KO and. I mean, it really sets the stage for the uh, next month's pay-per-view, which was Survivor Series 95, as the main event, for, main event for that was Diesel versus Brett. So they're brawling in the ring, outrun all the guys to break it up. I mean, you got Salvio Vega, Aldo Montoya, Bam Bam makes his appearance, you know, they're they're breaking it up. And it was basically, it seemed like this match just was used to, uh, you know, just... It, I don't want to say increase, but uh, just build to the Hitman and uh, Diesel. So, I mean, they went out of that Survivor Series. Brett actually ended up winning the title at that pay-per-view. And uh, I guess it really just, you know, Diesel just kind of had a bit of a lackluster uh, 
lackluster championship run there towards the end with the Mabel and Bulldog feuds. But after the card went off the air, um, you know, reading in the Observer, the review, I, I guess after the card went off the air, McMahon just slammed his headset on the table and just expressed how terrible the card was. So it's not just the fans that noticed. I mean, everyone involved seemed to really notice just how bad things things got. So so after the card, you know, there was actually, I think, three or four dark matches. You had uh, Yokozuna and Owen Hart facing off against Savio Vega and Bam Bam Bigelow. So Yoko did double duty. I'm not sure how he was able to do that after being gassed in that uh, earlier match with Mabel. But uh, you also got Bret Hart versus Isaac Yankum. Isaac Yankum had Skip and Jerry Lawler in his corner. Bret Hart had the uh, legendary Bombers, Miles Gorell and Brett McNeil in his. So at the very least, you know, the crowd got a Bret Hart match. So they got got to go home, got to go got to go home happy with that. So they got something from an otherwise very lackluster pay-per-view. Now, I mean, I've spoken before. I I've always liked to talk about the positives about wrestling and really focus on that because there is so much negativity. So I do apologize for how negative I was towards this card and I need to do a better job of picking events with, uh, you know, I can really talk more in an up, uh, uplifting light about because uh, this one just wasn't, it just checked the boxes of just a not a good show. So if you manage to stick this long through it, uh, I appreciate that because I know hearing someone complain about wrestling for 40 minutes isn't always the uh, most enjoyable. But like I said uh, earlier, next time I plan on doing a review, I'm going to throw up a poll and, uh, you know, just get some suggestions for events to review and, uh, you know, run with that. So if there is one you would like me to review for a future episode, definitely hit me up and let me know and I'll go out of my way and I'll watch it and I will do a review for that. So that's, uh, you know, something special right there. A chance for me to review a show of your choosing. So um, thank you very much for checking out this episode. It was fun to go back and watch something from the, uh, the mid nineties that I was familiar with, but never really got a chance to, uh, sit and watch so it was nice having an excuse to do that but um yeah if uh you're not already following me on twitter definitely find me on twitter at GrainmakerPod. hit me up uh i love talking wrestling and i love uh just you know getting out there and talking about whether it's the local scene or what's going on on a, a bigger stage you know definitely hit me up at GrainmakerPod on twitter uh send me an email email greenmakerpodcast at gmail.com let me know what you think of the show or uh just let me know if there's a guest you would like to have on or if uh you know questions comments concerns all that all that sort of stuff upon facebook greenmaker wrestling podcast uh apple podcasts spotify podcast greenmaker wrestling podcast for both google podcast up on all the podcast forums so uh that's the socials i mean uh i do need to post more on the facebook account i usually will get a few days in on the weekend and then life hits on the weekend weekdays and i'm you know not able to do as much but i do have plans for next week's episode already and i'm very stoked about that there's a a few things i'm going to look at and 
I got, uh, I think I got a, a special, special guest just to uh, come talk about an upcoming show. So I'm hyped about that. So hopefully that comes together. But uh, no, I, I truly appreciate you taking the time out of your day, joining me and listening to the podcast. I, I love talking wrestling. I love being able to bring stuff from the local scene or, you know, anything within driving distance from Winnipeg. I like to bring that out there and give it a chance, uh, chance to, for people to see it and to take it in and maybe find something new. So needless to say, thank you so much for checking out the podcast, for listening. I appreciate your support and, uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. Thanks.